Welcome, everybody, to episode eight of the Untitled Themed Entertainment Design Show. I'm your host, Andy Garfield, here with Patrick Kling. Say hi, Patrick. Hi. Hi, Patrick. <laughs> this is episode eight. Uh, really, it was a, there's a show out there called Once a Storybook Spectacular from the creative group uh, Quantum Creative Studios. And we had a lot of fun really, really diving into the technical aspects of their project. Uh, it was a great episode. You could catch some some footage and sizzle reels online. Uh, this opened up in Vietnam during the pandemic. They they kind of had their production shut down. Really, a, a, a quite a quality nighttime spectacular. You know, Andy, you you, you know, what, you watched the show a little bit. What are your what are your takeaways from the actual show itself? I did watch the show. I really enjoyed it. I thought it was really a spectacular spectacular. I mean, they really nailed it in every way i mean we go into great detail about the costumes and the puppets and, and all kinds of that kind of stuff and which i thought was really interesting and then the, all the direction and stage direction and then music and sound and and everything in between and um the challenges that uh the covid situation uh especially in vietnam uh gave them and it was it was a really great show i was really uh really pleased with it and i think you'll all enjoy it very much so without further ado here is episode eight of the untitled themed entertainment design show podcast enjoy Welcome, welcome, welcome. How's it going, Andy? Welcome, everyone, to the Untitled Theme Entertainment Design Show. I'm your host, one of the hosts, Patrick Kling, and over here we have... I'm your co-host, Andy Garfield. And can you tell, I just watched last week tonight with John Oliver right before the show, I'm like, welcome, welcome, welcome. Uh, <laughs> yeah. you, you you're growing, are you growing a November beard or some sort of no, no shape? I, no, I just forgot to shave this morning in the shower. I was I was so deep in thought, and I just got out of the shower. I'm like, oh, I'm not getting back in. Oh. Fair enough. Well, welcome to all of our viewers around the world, around the country, and, of course, listening on our podcast. It's great to have you. We have a great show ahead. Um, somebody fulfilled their life dream by creating um, a nighttime spectacular, unlike anything you've ever seen. We're really excited to talk to them in a little bit. But first, let's dive into the news. Which is to say, uh, the biggest news really is IAPA next week, right, Andy? Yep. Which, yep. This has been quite a, a lengthy journey. You know, people. Some people aren't going. Some people are worrying about the COVID virus, which is we understand all that. Where Where are you at today with your IAPA ness? Um, I am not going to IAPA this year. Okay, that is the final. And then, is this the first time in like a decade or something like that? Like some yeah, people. Be, besides last year, yeah, it's the first time in yeah at least ten years that I haven't gone. How's that feel? Um, fine. I mean, I know it's going to be kind of a weird year, and like, I don't need to go and like bear witness to that in person. So, uh, you know, I'd rather wait until next year until things are like probably more back to normal, and it's a lot more fun and crazy like it can get. Because you know, I like my app a you know crazy fun like like right. three parties a night. You know, not getting back to the room until four with very little memory on how you got there, you know, 
Yeah, barely getting to your morning meetings you know that's how it should be not just like oh there's like three people that i know here or like you know there's no exp party or there's no lasso party or whatever i don't even know if there are i haven't gotten any emails from the some of the usual suspects so yeah no understood understood it's really a uh I'm going. Obviously, we're actually exhibiting. Big Break Foundation is exhibiting this year. Oh, really? You have a you have a booth. We have a booth. Yep. So we will are be. Gonna be are you, you going to be a booth, babe? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I think yeah. You can call it that booth, babe. Uh, so the very hot, hot about, pants and like your Hooters shirt. No, no, that goes it's very counterintuitive with our message. I think. Um, <laughs> You know, so we'll no, we're there. We're really excited. We've actually also sponsored um, over fifty people to go to IAPA. So with our entertainment pass program, so that's exciting. And Some of our, our beloved TETV volunteers uh, were, were recipients yeah. of that, which is really exciting. So huge! It's 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 an exciting year to go uh, just to get back in the flow of things. It's yeah, like I, I agree. It's going to be kind of like I think IAPA light. Like I think it's going to be about. 70% of a normal IAPA in regards to the energy. But then it's like maybe it's a little time to take a breathe, breath, slow down a little bit uh, and enjoy it. So I'll be exhibiting. I'll be I'm arranging a lot of different elements to that and super excited. If anybody wants to link up with me, you can shoot me a message, uh, any LinkedIn or any media, and I'm happy to chat with you. Uh, looking forward to I'm, – I'm kind of bad, but like I haven't set up as many meetings as I probably should have. And But – I'm available. And a lot of stuff, it's just like you walk into somebody and you're like, hey, why don't we grab some time, right? And then, and then it works out and the parties and all that. I think I think 70% is generous. I think that yeah. without any um, vendors or buyers from Asia mm. and the Middle mm. East, I think that it's going to be. And then, like, you know, um, the first planes from Europe landed today. In Orlando, right. the, the Virgin flight from Manchester landed today. I'm I, I'm sure it was full of of Universal tourists. Just like they went straight to the park. Yeah. <laughs> Did you see that you were there? Did you see a bunch of Brits going around like with waving Union Jacks and? <laughs> Not really. Yeah. Another news. I, I my I have my cousins are in town and I'm, I hosted them at Universal yesterday and today, and you know just I I, I got to hi- highlight that Born Stuntacular show. It's a really incredible show. That I don't, it kind of opened at an odd time, uh, right? As the park was reopening with the pandemic, it is a really amazing for a show. It was my second time doing it, and you know, I took to Twitter to talk about how amazing it is, and, and I, I really, that, yeah, it's really incredible. So I uh, just, I just wanted to highlight that. Um, then today, you know, did the, <laughs> I'm a big guy, so uh, it was like going to every test seat, going on Forbidden Journey, then being pulled out of the seat after I've already oh, no. the seat. Then they're like, well, if I can get you a green light, I'm like, I've already gotten a green light. I'm like, okay, well, then we got on, but it's just like this this whole cat and mouse game of trying to get those green lights, which is great. And then even if you get the green light, then they'll they'll still give you the walk of shame. Um, and I don't want to break the ride down, but <laughs> so, so I got some pounds to lose, I guess, to get into more uh, theme park shape. But of course, went on the last coaster last night, top two roller coaster in the world for me. Uh, ex- excited. Uh, it's always great what's, to go on that. What's that what's the other one? If it's top two. X2 X2. That's the it's the only roller coaster that I that I go on that uh, terrifies me to my core every time. Going up that going up that lift hill, I'm questioning all my life decisions. Yep, that's why that's why I guess it. This one's more this one's fun and exhilarating, but X2 is the most terrifying experience you'll you, I, I think you'll do. I know there's a clone out there in the world. Right, yeah, so I had a good day at Universal. You know, did the did the Universal thing went on the Cat in the Hat. Spider Man's holding up. 
Um, and speaking of Spider-Man, the Legends panel this year for IAPA, for those that are going to IAPA, is actually featuring like Scott Trowbridge, I think Phil Hedema, and Thank Bob you. Rogers. It's gonna be, it should be cool. So I'm looking forward to seeing that. That's always a fun panel. Uh, so I, I, I went on that. Now, that ride's a great ride. Every time I go on it, I appreciate it even more than, than the past. So Oh, it's incredible. Yeah, it's one of the greatest dark rides ever devised, for yeah. sure. And it, the fact that it's, what, 23 years old now, 22 years yeah. old? I mean, yeah. and the fact that it's still, like, you know, one of the top dark rides for most people who no. are smart <laughs> and have good taste. <laughs> sure. Well, oh, let's see. We got a little fact. Andy gets terrified on posters. <laughs> okay, well, there you go. <laughs> Thanks for watching, Jason. I appreciate it. For Jason. So, you know, uh, I, I think the big news, we've covered it. IAPA is huge. We're going to see a lot of announcements about the Thea Awards. We'll have industry news. Uh, you know, we're, our, our presence for TETV is going to be a little light because there's just so much going on next week. But I'm sure we'll do some wrap-ups and recaps and all that afterwards for everyone to enjoy. But now we have a whole crew waiting in the green room. I don't want to delay them anymore. Let's go ahead and bring on members of the creative and production team for once a story tell a storytelling nightacular. I, I just messed that up. Kelly, you can correct me in what the actual storybook spectacular. Okay, thank you. I Kelly. should have done the intros. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the show. Melanie and Aaron, welcome. Hi, Hi. guys. Hello. So, what, Kelly, can you correct me? What is it actually called? I, I, the I actual I title of the show is Once an Enchanted Storybook Spectacular. That's great. That's great. Well, <laughs> welcome, everybody, to the show. I'm so sorry I, I butchered the name of that experience. I got That's caught up okay. in the and I didn't have the notes in front of me. It's great to have you on, you know? We're really excited to have you. At least we're, we didn't ask we're you happy to, to be here. At least we didn't ask you to say it in Vietnamese. True. I cannot say it in Vietnamese. <laughs> <laughs> so why don't we get started off by making some introductions. Uh, uh, Melanie, why don't we start with you, okay? Sure. Uh, I'm Melanie Lockyer, and um, I was the associate director and um, puppet director and um, choreographer for the show. Welcome to the show. How about you, Kelly? I'm Kelly Easterling. I'm the show director and the chief creative officer of Quantum Creative Studios. Excellent. And Christopher? Hi, my name is Christopher Vergara, and I was the costume designer on the project. Perfect. Welcome. And then, of course, we have Aaron. Hello, uh, Aaron Ryan. I was the video and projection designer on the project. Beautiful. Well, thank you all so much for joining us. You know, I think I think the best way to get started off, right, is just to tell us a little bit about Quantum Creative Studios and then once a storybook spectacular. Kelly, do you want to take it away with that? Sure. Well, a lot of people know about Quantum Creative Studios. We do a lot of theme design. We specialize in creative entertainment and uh, attraction design. Uh, but we also work on museums and um, location-based entertainment. And, you know, we really focus on creating really compelling stories, uh, really driving a creative process from uh, from a storytelling standpoint. We focus a lot on writing the story first, getting the words right, really figuring out what we want that guest experience to look and feel like. Uh, and then we use that to inspire the whole design process. And this sounds a lot like what a lot of people do in the, in the themed entertainment industry, um, but we really try and drive it um, uh, as deep as we can and really focus on really the nuanced details of the story um, and make sure that uh, we're reaching our audience uh, in the best way we can. Uh, and so we face this challenge with, uh, with this um, 
spectacular in Vietnam uh, because uh, they uh, wanted a big show in the middle of the theme park, uh, just very Disney-like uh, on a castle with a big lagoon, uh, but they placed the audience so far away. And so uh, we really had to, you know, figure out a way to write a story that, that worked. Uh, and so uh, I think the outcome of that was really successful. I think, I think uh, it was um, a, a wonderful experience for all of us, but I think the guests are really enjoying the show every night. I think we are, we are reaching across the span of distance between our show and the audience and really connecting with them in a great way. And a lot of that has to do with the fantastic work of the team that you have uh, with us here today, uh, who really, really focused on how to tell these nuanced story uh, storytelling points uh, and make them reach all the way out across the water uh, and, and make them uh, connect with the audience. So why don't we go through a quick uh, reel. We can do our little sizzle reel so everybody can kind of see what the show looks and feels like, get us a, a sense of it. Um, and then we can talk about a little, little bit more. Is that cool? Sounds great. Let's let it roll, CJ. Fireballs, those fireballs are so insane. When I watched the so show, just a little show, earlier. you know, just a little, just a little <laughs> street atmosphere entertainment. Yeah, that obviously is absolutely incredible. Uh, you know, we had you, you both, uh, or uh, Kelly um, and Jason on a, a while, a long time ago, or maybe it was last year, and you, you showed us a little bit of the in production work on it and to see it come to life in such a spectacular way is really, really amazing. So, congratulations to everybody, the entire team in Quantum. Uh, and of Thank course you. the the you know the, the owner operator for putting it all together. And it's great to have you here. So you, everyone just saw that video. Clearly, this is a stunning show. Uh, you know, Kelly, why don't you talk a little bit more about you know the story, or did you do a unique ba uh, unique story, or is it based on something? Can you talk about that? Yeah, I mean, uh, this was one of those situations where uh, we were working with Vin Pearl, who is the owner operator. They it's a brand new park, so it was all new construction and. They, they really wanted something that was going to be the finale, right? And so, uh, you know, we talked a lot about how uh, the guest experience in the park should be a story in and of itself from the beginning of the day to the end of the day. And, uh, and we thought about what, what, is the, what is the guest story, right? The guest journey, not, not just in our show, but 
from the moment they walk in the gate in the morning to the time they watch the show at night and leave the park, what does that journey look like? And what we discovered was that there's all these great places that they go. There's these adventures that they go on to all these different locations. And we thought that might be a great inspiration for how we tell this story. And one of the things that we wanted to do was make it about a park guest. We wanted a park guest to be the hero of the show. And so those were kind of the driving forces behind, um, you know, creating this story where we have a park guest who kind of stumbles out onto the stage um, and becomes the unwitting hero of this incredible battle between good and evil and, and saves the world and saves the world. And so the story is basically that uh, there's this, there's these characters that live within a storybook and the storybook was written with the quill of a Phoenix. And so what makes that so magical is that in your imagination, when you read a book, you create these pictures and these images in your head of the action that you're reading. And because this book is enchanted, this storybook is enchanted, when it's read, when you read those, those stories, they come to life. And so the show starts with the storybook opening up and the hero coming out and experiencing all of the stories in the storybook. But deep inside the storybook is this evil sorceress. And the sorceress wants to break out of the storybook and kind of break into real life and take over the world. And if she can just get the quill of the phoenix, she can write that into the storybook. And so it becomes the hero's goal, the hero's objective to, to, to get the quill of the phoenix and finish the story so that the, so that the, sorcer the sorceress can't do it. Uh, and so it becomes about this hero finding it within himself, finding the power, finding the power of his own imagination to be able to finish the storybook and write the sorceress into the pages of the storybook bound in the book forever and never being able to come out again. And so from the moment the show starts, the, the unwitting park guest, who I'll be honest with you, is actually an actor because we couldn't put an actual guest on stage it's too dangerous um but uh this unwitting park guest kind of stumbles out on stage and he's paired up with a great sidekick pearly who's this kind of charming monkey who spends a lot of time getting to know the guests and he comes out on stage and he's he creates a lot of the, the 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 humor in the show and the two of them go through these trials and they battle pirates and they go under the water. And throughout the story, the storyteller is telling him, use your imagination, finish the story. But he eventually comes up against the sorceress and she demands that quill from him. And he battles her and he, he, he calls forth the phoenix to assist him. And there's this enormous battle in the end between the sorceress and the phoenix. And ultimately the phoenix and the boy and Pearly overcome and they they finish the storybook and the book closes and he has won and we are safe the world is safe and we're here now today to talk about it <laughs> so the, the 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 park ownership wanted a really unique story they wanted their own uh their own experience they didn't want to pull from a a, a, a typical um, you know, fairy tale or Greek myth or that sort of thing. Um, but they did want to use some of the typical, uh, I would say, tropes or devices that might be used to, 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 to help tell the story of the battle between good and evil. And I think that was a good choice because 
our audience was 268 feet away across the lagoon. And there's a lot of character development that has to happen in order for, for the audience to fall in love with these characters. And so by using some of these storytelling techniques that we've all come to know and, and are used to seeing you know, in the world of the battle between good and evil, we're able to kind of fast forward to the point where the audience is like, okay, I get it. You know, this is this is the hero. He's cute. He's charming. We love him. And that's his sidekick. And the sidekick is cute, cute and charming and and funny. And we we love him. And so they fall in love with these characters. Um, there is no question when the sorceress comes out, she is one hundred percent evil. We know it, and it is very clear, which you'll see a little bit later. Um, the uh, the culture of the Vietnamese culture is really important. And so it was something that the, the ownership wanted to make sure um, was part of this production. And so there's moments in the show where, uh, in fact, the first time that the boy meets the Phoenix and gets the quill from the Phoenix is on the island of Phu Quoc in Vietnam. C tying back to the Vietnamese culture was was a really, really important uh, aspect for this. There's a lot of pride in the culture there. And so that was something that we really worked hard to make sure we captured that. So Aaron really spent a lot of time making sure that we, was, we were really capturing the sense of of that Vietnam feeling in the in the visuals, certainly in the costume designs, um, certainly in in the movement and the staging that, that Melanie did. Uh, a lot of the a lot of the the action of the play and the visuals of the play really had to tie back to that culture. So we spent a lot of time figuring out what that looked and felt like, and there was a lot of collaboration from the um, from the ownership, which was really helpful and uh, and and really um, uh, a great. Uh, collaboration with them. So that's the story. I have to tell you, I think it was really successful because I watched the show today and thought it was great. And like, you know, I don't speak Vietnamese, so I didn't get a lot of that. But I have to tell you, I have a friend who has seen the show. He was, he's Egyptian and his girlfriend is Vietnamese. And they wrote to me and they're like, hey, did you have anything to do with the show? I'm like, no, I didn't. But what do you think? And they like, they loved it. And the Vietnamese girl, she was just like, oh, it was so Vietnamese. It was so nice to see like a, a big sort of show like that, that felt Vietnamese. And then my friend who's Egyptian, he's like, I love the two, even though I didn't understand a lot of what was going on in terms of the language, but it, I think it was just really successful because of all of the attention that you paid to to the story and the visuals and, and all that kind of stuff, and the, and the media yeah. especially. Yeah, well, thank you so much. I, you know, I think, and, and I can, I can, um, uh, I can think, uh, really, it's this Melanie, who, who put a lot of trust and faith into the cast and worked together with the cast, and there was a lot of back and forth with the cast and discussions with them. Um, and, uh, and I'm not sure that was necessarily part of their culture. I think they were used to people just coming in and telling them what to do. And I think we surprised them a little bit when we came in and we started saying, how do you feel about this, you know, um, and, and giving them a voice. But I think that helped a lot. You know, I mean, I think it really helped a lot. Not only do they, did they take on a lot of ownership of the show, they really invested, like they invested a lot. Um, and that, that connects, that really reads, you know, people feel it, you know, they, they feel it a lot. Well, for sure. Well, let's let's dive into that. Let's dive into like the production and the the, uh, the approach and execution of all of the the different elements. You know, the 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 costumes, the puppets, the the media. You know, and you know, I mean, the all the pyro and the the fountain programming, the lighting was also great. I want to hear uh, start at the beginning. I want to hear all about it. Yeah, Mel. Um, no, you, well, why don't you? Yeah, Melanie, go ahead. You, you tell us first about your experience. 
Um, I just had a great time. And I think for me, the best part of the show besides this creative team was um, getting to know the cast. And um, they did. They, they really took on this show as something that they felt so excited to be a part of. And I can't tell you the, the excitement when they put the costumes on for the first time. Uh, you know, all the women said, I feel like a queen that they said, you know, these are the, these are, this is something that um, only royalty would wear or some, something that you would, I would wear if I was getting married. And they all just felt, you know, they put the costumes on and they, they took care of it. And, um, and, you know, we took a lot of time um, when we were putting the projections up so that they could sit out and watch. And um, cause you know, we, we did show them things like on the big screen in the rehearsal studio, but it's not the same as seeing the projections on the castle and seeing them get teary eyed and excited. And, you know, so it was just a great group of people. And um, I was sad to leave and I still keep in touch with them. They all check in on me every couple of days. I get a little text from somebody. And um, I think, you know, part of it was we had to deal with communication because I think we only had maybe five or six who spoke any English. Some of them spoke very, very good English and none of us spoke Vietnamese. So we had, um, I think four translators or at some point we had five translators that we used, um, but we did. We, I, I tried to ask questions of them just to say, you know, does this make sense to you? Or because, you know, we did as much research as we could on Vietnamese culture before going in, especially like Christopher and Aaron. But, you know, as far as movement goes, you know, we, I wanted to make sure that the movements um, felt authentic to them. And, you know, to be honest, you know, knowing how far we were from the audience, a lot of the movement had to just be giant. And we used props and things like that. But um the cast just really, I, I've never worked with a bunch of people who came in early, stayed late. They worked their, their little butts off and in the heat, sometimes we'd have rehearsal in the middle of the day and, you know, it was 118 degrees and, you know, they never come yeah. A lot of the stuff, a lot of the work that you did with them was was training them in, in puppetry, which they'd yeah. never done before. And that was a huge, that's a, such a huge part of the show. Um, the Jim Henson Company produced these puppets for us. And, you know, the Phoenix was enormous. How many people was the Phoenix puppet? Um, the, well, the Phoenix was 40 feet. The wingspan was 40 feet long and 25 feet deep. And we had 12 people who did it. We had one guy who did just just the head and a girl who had the body part and two people on the tail and four puppeteers on each side doing the wings. Cause it, 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 it was a lot, but no, because the thing spun apart and you know, it, it came to, it ran together and then it would spin off and explode and run off stage. Um, it, it took a lot of um, practice just getting them to work together as a group and we didn't have mirrors, which made it really hard. So sometimes, well, for the, for the first month, I think, we did a lot of the Phoenix work outside in the heat, and we would work in increments of 15 to 20 minutes. And then we would have to come inside and rest because working those heavy puppets in that heat, um, you can only do that for so long. And we didn't want to torture them. But, you know, we did it outside so that they could look at themselves in um, the uh, reflection of the glass. Because a lot of the, like, if you can see in this picture, we were in a couple of ballrooms. 
Um, and within this ballroom, which we is what we did most of the time, the ceiling wasn't high enough for them to actually work the puppets. So we did more small puppets here. And this is our pearly puppet. It's a hand and rod puppet. And, you know, none of them had puppeteering experience. So it's a it's tricky to teach somebody, you know, without a mirror. But, you know, trying to keep Well, and what they would do, it. remember, Mel, they would take video. You can see she's yeah. doing there. They would take video and then they would go back home at nighttime and watch and themselves. they would practice yeah. with the video from their phone. Yeah. It, was, it was, I mean, it was great. They were dedicated. <laughs> they were. And then we also set up small mirrors that we did have and we'd work in front of the mirror. And, you know, uh, a puppeteering is, um, is definitely a learned skill, but we, we were really lucky to find um, three or actually four people who worked that little puppet because um, we have two swings, a female and a male swing, who actually um, were were naturals at it. So um, because some people, you just, they can't get the idea of how you work the mouth. And, you know, they weren't talking, but they had to sing along and make the eek sounds and really look excited. And 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 it was tricky, too, to, to try to get that puppet to not look like it was floating. And because we had right. to kind of lift him up off the ground, so we didn't want him flying around. But and we also had um, three jellyfish that were, I believe, 15 feet tall and that also caught the wind. So that was tricky because um, it can. Longer and skinnier sticks. And um, we had a, two eels that followed each other around and also a fish flag, which, which was all, and you know, that Phoenix, I don't know if you guys can tell by looking at any pictures of it, but um, uh, it was, they're, they're all hand dyed fabrics. Like that's luminescent. I mean, it, all those, all the um, fish things, not the Phoenix, but the, the aquatic things all glowed in the dark so that when we did have the black light, you can really see them glowing in the dark. And um, you know, those the the phoenix, it, it came such a long way. I kind of wish I had shown you some pictures of what it started off looking like, you know. And um, we had to make sure we stopped calling it a chicken because it looked like a chicken at one point. We went and, through a phase. We went through yeah. a phase where it looked like a chicken for a while. <laughs> yeah, but the, you know, Vinpro was really. They had a lot of insightful. Um, tips on what they wanted it to look like, especially like details on the eye and what color the eye should be and how the, the fierceness of the eye. And and um, those wings are all hand painted by Jason Weber, who's um, from uh, Jim Henson. And um, then he went back and he hand painted gold like flames on them. So you can really, you know, in the light, it was just beautiful. I mean, that's the wings without the body. And the body is so heavy that we had to wait for a harness to be delivered because he it, it just weighed too much to be able to move it. It was so top heavy. But but I think in the and end, it was successful. We had to design all this in such a way that um, that uh, Aaron could then turn it into content, right? Because we had to blend what was happening on stage live with the video content. And so it could there could be that much of a disparity between what we were actually seeing uh, in the video content and what was happening live on the stage. So, you know, we were you know, <laughs> there were many times where Aaron was like, I need a final design. <laughs> I need to know what this is going to look like. 
Can you, can you guys talk uh, a little bit about the decision to have live actors and puppets uh, on the human scale uh, so far away from the audience? I'm really curious about that. Yeah, thought process. yeah it's, it was a hard decision. Uh, let me tell you something. I was the craziest person in this in this entire team for a very long time. I'm the person that said, let's use live actors. And everybody said, don't do it. Don't do it. Don't do it. If they're too far away. And, and, I, and, and, and I kept saying, it'll be fine. It'll be fine. It'll be great. We'll make it work. It's going to be fine. And, uh, and I would be lying if I didn't say there were certainly times where I was like, oh, no. I think we've made a huge mistake. But every time I visited the site and I stood at the place, because when we first went there, there was a hole in the ground, Andy. Like, it was, there was nothing. There wasn't even a castle, right? So, like, it was a mound of dirt. And so we were, like, pacing it out on the ground, and we're standing there, and I'm like, okay, well, if I'm here and that's the edge of the stage there, that should be okay, right? And so it was teaching the actors really broad movements and really being, you know, broad. And it was it was it was Melanie giving them, you know, props and and ways to make themselves bigger, right? And Christopher giving them, you know, like lining on the inside of the of the cloaks so that when the arms would come up, the the person becomes larger, right? That because I'm telling you, up against that huge 16-story castle. I mean, with the fountains and the fire that's 200 feet in the air, I mean, like it's the, the people start getting smaller and smaller and smaller, even though they're not getting further away. And so it became yeah. really it became a real challenge, you know, for the for the for the technical process to make sure we didn't lose them. Right. We didn't want to lose them. And so, I mean, all the way down to to to, you know, Melanie has the has the pirate captain staged so that, you know, his foot's up on like a thing and he's got this sword. But he has to turn the sword in a way so that the light kind of hits the sword, you know? Um, it, I mean, those kinds of nuanced notes um, and direction makes a difference, right? So that we can see what we're looking at, so that we can, you know, so the lighting team has to actually pull focus and, and light it up so that we know, you know? And I think ultimately it was very successful. People do fall in love with these characters. The show does not happen without actors. The actors carry the show. Um, and so I think I think it works. I think it works, you know, if I don't say so myself, but um, ultimately, you know, it was a, it was a tough decision. It was a tough decision. Yeah. There you go. That's the moment. Yeah. Such a well, great picture too. Well, Christopher, I, I want to, uh, that's a perfect, I think, segue to talk about the costumes. It's uh, I'd love to hear you, your, your thoughts on that. Yeah. I mean, it was a, it's a, it was an excellent project. It was such a wonderful story to tell. So that's like always like the good, but then when you're, we're told as the costume designer that the audience is going to be, you know, 200 plus feet away, you're like, oh, okay, so we're going to use the big brushes <laughs> on, on this production. And, and I make a joke of it, but that's really how we had to think about it. You had to, I thought about it, imagined it in like big color blocks um, where, so that we could uh, see the human being um, in contrast with the video, with the puppets, with the all the other elements in the show and 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 not be so sensitive about the little details even though if you get close in there there are the details are there um for the performer to know and i i hope that the audience then feels that those details are there but that was a, a really important uh thing so when we're going through the deciding the looks for everybody um that was uh an, a, something that we had to keep in mind and then also we had to keep in mind that the show you know it, 
it goes, the story goes pretty fast. And we go to a lot of places and they, there are a lot of, um, they, they're pirates and they're jellyfish and they're the phoenix and they're townspeople and the pirate. It, it, it was a lot of, so we had to figure out even before I think the, the drawing started, like how are we going to be able to do all of these different roles and, and portray all these different characters? So that was sort of another uh, challenge in it. Um, but it was it was really great to, to figure it out and to and to do that, like Melanie said, with the company and 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 with deep respect for the Vietnamese culture, um, which was uh, I think central to what we were doing. And so then we so we were trying to figure out how do we come together? How do we how do we have the the phoenix elements come together with the costume elements that we're telling a similar story? So here you can so see. So you can see in this one the phoenix. Sorry, Christopher. You, yeah. the, he's got the phoenix like on the actual costume, and this costume goes together with the phoenix really well because this happens in the moment where the phoenix arrives. And so, I mean, these, these, there was never a moment where I feel like in the costume world mm -hmm. um, where Christopher ever said, oh, they're 268 feet away. Nobody will ever notice. You know what I mean? Like painstaking attention to detail in these costumes, not only because they have to last outside in this mm -hmm. tremendous heat. And, and even though the show is only 22 minutes long and they only do it once a day, like it's 22 minutes of like incredible, like, like crazy fast speed. And the, the costumes have to be durable, right? And so, it, you know, there, there's this constant balance of like, you know, how do we make them durable and last and not make them out of visqueen? You know what I mean? So, uh, it, I mean, we ended up with just, uh, I mean, this is like, this costume is just un, uh, incredibly gorgeous. Gorgeous. And there are some details that I think the, the audience won't necessarily capture, but I think the the characters, the people playing these characters, they, they, they can, they can, they can, it can embrace these characters better and feel more aligned with the story when they have such an incredible, you know, wardrobe to work with. Right. Sorry, and then there, go ahead. No, that's exactly right. And then, and so then a sort of character here, like the shaman where you really want to stand out and be able to follow them in the story. Um, uh, you can a nice tall hat with some Phoenix feathers on it and, and, and a beautiful color that worked well with our, in our environment. But then there are moments where you want it to sort of blend in. So when you go to like the, what they wore when they were the Phoenix or, or here are sorcerers, which is great. You can see we're trying to create interesting shapes in the shoulders, in the headpiece that will help us etch them out in this large uh, space that we had uh, to deal with. Um, and she's spiky. She's spiky. And she's spiky. <laughs> Um, but then when you get to, yeah, and then exactly. And so then like what Kelly had said before, you know, lining the cape in a color that when she moves around, you can see the shape of the body uh, underneath uh, is really helpful, especially when you're at such a distance. So there was a lot of those kinds of techniques that we and, and thoughtfulness that we had to do throughout our process. But then there was like a moment when you're with the puppets, especially the Phoenix, where you need to blend in with the larger object that you're creating. So that was also a, a wonderful opportunity to work with the uh, Jim Henson and their group and to you know be very exacting and matching the colors of their, their pieces of their puppet to our colors of our costumes so that when they were, when they come together, they try to act as one cohesive unit. And I, and, and it's, I think it's pretty successful because as I watched and as I saw other people see, you just see Phoenix, you just see the bird. You don't see, you, you see, are able to see past the puppeteers and, and 
that was, uh, I think, a really great um, thing that we were able to accomplish together. Yeah, and a lot of the conversation, I think, um, with Jim Henson and with Christopher was about the actual fabric choices. Mm. So that they moved in the same kind of way. Uh, and that's, that's, that was a very uh, detailed conversation and, and, and took quite a bit of time to pull together. Um, but again, there's that kind of collaboration so that, so that we, we end up with one kind of cohesive artistic piece that ends up on stage um, between you know, a, a handful or not even a handful, a many different artists that mm -hmm. are pulling all of those different elements together. But even for example, on their puppet, this, their puppeteer, they have sort of um, feathers on their tunics that are the exact same shape as the feather that Jim Henson, the big wing piece. So that there's always, we're always referencing each other um, and, and, and in collaboration together, which is really wonderful when we get to do that work together that way. I loved all the yeah. costumes. I thought that was, it was, they were just absolutely gorgeous. And I was, it was so, such a thrill to see like, you know, oh, what's the next one gonna be like the next one, you know, just, it was just, and I just you could you can see the attention to detail, you know, I mean, when you watch the video, you know, of course, we had the close ups and I could see just the, the sumptuous fabrics that you used. And it's very feels very expensive and uh, luxurious. I, I liked it a lot. It was really cool. Congratulations. Thank you. That means a lot. Yeah, we we, we def that's definitely what we were trying to do. Honor the story, honor the culture, honor the, the people. Christopher, do you have a favorite costume? So I, I like that pirate. Um, <laughs> the pirate I, I have captain. To say the cap captain. I think it's it's a it's a fun shape that we got to do mixing some leathers in there. You know, it, it was very interesting. But I think the, the being part of the phoenix, um, how we yeah that you know there's some colors in there. I think it, it you quickly know what it's funny. You quickly know that shape. You quickly know who he is. As, as Ke Kelly was mentioning, we don't have very much time to tell you who these people are. You gotta like look at them and know. And I like with him, I'm I see him. I'm like, oh, okay, I know who this swashbuckler is. Um, so that's <laughs> it's, and, and the audience, I think, quickly is like, can identify how and the, and and we identify how this is being born of the imagination of our hero. Um, so that was that was a fun one to do that whole set of, of pirate costumes um, was really cool yeah that was the nice thing about being in the imagination right we got away with being able to use brighter color blocks really get mm -hmm. a great um, you know because uh, because this is really his imagination right it doesn't have to be ultra real um, but it needed to feel real to the audience right? right so we got to play with with some of that back and forth yeah it's fun but also I wanted to say that each pirate, had a different costume like mm. this is the pirate captain but each pirate i think there were six other pirates and each one was absolutely different so and they all matched their own character and everyone had like a different kind of a sword but i mean everyone had a different you know they they matched together as a group but you know the the attention to detail and you know the hats and and the you know everything had a little some of it had a little sparkle added to it you know right. Was, was great. It was beautiful, and they loved it. Right, and then of course yeah. there's the the townsfolks with just just some beautiful costumes referencing the fire of the phoenix, um, and that whole group of people. When especially when they were all together doing Melanie's choreography, um, uh, was uh, some a, a, a fun moment in the highlight of the show because then the audience can get up and start dancing too. It was like a great um, 
special time in, in the show. That's fun. Yeah. Well, Aaron, Aaron, I want to, I want, I'd love to hear about the media, uh, all, all that beautiful media that you produced for all the fountain uh, projections and the, the castle projections and everything like that. It was extensive. Oh, I feel like we lost Aaron. Oh, is Aaron? Aaron's gone. I didn't even look. I'm just like, oh. blah blah blah, Aaron. <laughs> well, well, why don't we go to, go to one of the questions? If, uh, well, we're waiting for Aaron to reconnect. Let's go to uh, just Jason's questions. Oh. And then, oh, he's back. There he is. Aaron, Aaron, I was just, uh, I wanted to hear from you about all of the beautiful media production that you did for the show on the castle and the the, the fountains and everything like that are just fantastic work. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, this, the opportunity to do this show was incredible. This canvas is giant. I think in the, in the U.S. we're used to seeing castles at theme parks built in scale and perspective. So when you when you enter, they look huge, but as you get closer, they're not. This was not built that way. This was a giant, giant castle. It was unbelievably massive. Um, so just to be able to to work on a show and project all this media content on it was exciting. I think, you know, there's a lot of projection mapping and themed entertainment nowadays, and I really thought a lot about wanting, you know, what could we do to set this apart? And I just really, I wanted to embrace the architecture of the castle in every look that we did in some way. Cause as we've, as we've been speaking about, there's a lot of locations, there's a lot of detailed story points. And, you know, I think a, a mistake would have been to really fight the castle and just try to use it as a projection screen to, to show all those places, et cetera. But we really, we tried to bring the castle into every look. So we're under the ocean we created this um, as if the castle had broken apart and, and was in ruins at the bottom of the ocean, or, you know, we made it into a temple. Um, but we really, we, and, and tried to think about projections as lighting in a lot of the scenes. So it didn't always look like video moments, but sometimes we're just subtly lighting the castle to feel a certain way. Um, it was an incredible opportunity. Uh, I, I, and I loved working with all these wonderful people. I thought it was really successful, all the things you mentioned, especially, you know, um, you know, having it play not as a castle and turn it into a temple and, and things like that. I thought it was really smart. Yeah, because it doesn't go away completely ever. So right. we embrace it and we can alter it and it really becomes specific and stands out rather than fighting it throughout the show. And, and I'll say, about... Andy, the, the process of getting to the point, and this is, this is exactly what I'm about to talk about, the getting to the point where we were ready to actually start putting content up on the castle, I mean, it was a, it was, it was a struggle. There were people that were supposed <laughs> to be there that weren't, that weren't there because of COVID. They couldn't come. And so, you know, we were like, well, we'll, we'll, we'll figure it out. And we, you know, we're doing phone calls and video calls and FaceTimes and all this stuff. Uh, trying to get to the point where we actually have the, the the media servers and all the projectors and everything aligned and ready to go and actually start to put content up on the castle. And, uh, you know, the kind of the same goes with with fountains. You know, we, the fountains are there, but, you know, getting everything, getting the technology to a point where we're ready to put it together. You know, I think I think we kind of got to the point where we were ready for that to happen. And there was probably about three or four more days of us just going, come on, let's go. Let's get it done. And um and so there was this moment where uh, I, I don't remember how it happened. I, maybe I called Aaron or, or or whatever. We said we're going to see. We're going to. We're just going to try it. We're going to put the 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 pirate ship moment on the water screen. And we hadn't seen anything else on the water screen yet. We hadn't done anything yet. We just said let's just let's just 
wing it. Let's just see what happens. And we did, <laughs> we did it. And it actually worked out really well. Like the first time, which rarely ever happens. Um, and there was this moment afterwards where we were just standing there. We were like, wow, that, that really worked. <laughs> that, that looked great. <laughs> and so I mean, we continued to make changes and finesse it and, you know, kind of work it out. But I think it was the first time that we all took, uh, like exhaled and said, oh, this, this is going to look really awesome. Like, this is going to be great. Um, because I think up to that point, getting all of the parts and pieces to, to, to the point where they, where they actually were functioning together felt like it was a struggle. I think it was probably a normal thing, but given the COVID and the everything else and the quarantines and all the stuff that we were going on, I think we were all kind of on a heightened sense of like, you know, if anything goes wrong here, we're really on this Island by ourselves. We don't have a lot of resources. This has to work. And so when we saw it happen, I think, I think everybody just kind of like the shoulders came down a little bit. We're like, okay, this is great. Like it was great. And we were all really happy to see it. I don't know if we have the video snippet of just that moment, the pirate ship moment, but it, it was really a magical moment in the process right at the beginning of the, of the tech process and the creative process where we were putting the show in. Um, I loved, I loved the way you use the fountains too, because it's, it was obviously when you, it was tricky, I could tell, because you have the fountains, then the the uh, the mist screen fountains have that instantly become a barrier between you and the actors. But I, you know, I thought that you used it in a really smart way where it's just, you know, you know, almost as a screen, you know, you know, pun intended of, of like, you know, to do like a little set change or a wardrobe change or, you know, that kind of stuff. I thought that was, it was a really uh, very delicate balance, obviously, that you guys did really well with. Thank you. It's delicate in front of the screen. It is chaos behind yeah, the screen. I'm sure. <laughs> well, Actually, it's not. It's very organized, thanks to Melanie. <laughs> um, I also want to say that Aaron really also utilized the actors, and he videotaped them doing certain elements um, and added them onto the water screen. But there's a moment where the sorceress is throwing fireballs, and then so... She, he videotaped it, we choreographed, so she threw a fireball and then a fireball exploded in the water. And yeah, then that was really had, cool. He had, um, you know, the, the hero swimming, swimming and falling in the ocean and then, you know, settling down. And I mean- On the pirate really, ship. And, yeah, on the pirate yeah. ship and pirates climbing up the castle. Yeah, yeah. It was It's it hard was really to see cool. in the beginning, it's hard to see in the video what Mel's talking about, but there's a moment where like the boy is standing here and he does the whole Five, thing. Four, and then, three, oh yeah, here's the, two, here's the one, video of the here. sorceress. Preparing fireballs. And two, prepare to throw and throw. Reaction. <laughs> Prepare to throw, and throw, and big throw. Yeah. Was it all shot in Vietnam? Yeah, we shot it there on site. Wow. Yeah. Well, I mean, uh, let's. I've, there's a question from the uh, from the audience, a comment uh, from Jason McManus about: Is there anything on site uh, that that in the production in the previous process that that you thought was going to work, and then when you get to the site, it didn't quite work out the way you imagined? Because you talk about like all the stuff, like the pirate ship that like just immediately worked. What what did what happened? Uh, what what didn't work, if if anything? Uh, I I will say one part of it was that the 
the sorceress was supposed to run into the castle and run upstairs and be on one of the levels and throw fire from the top there. And when we, the first day we actually tried to run up there, it was so treacherous getting up those stairs that it, and it, it just took too long. It was just going to be too dangerous, but she ended up running up the mountain and throwing it from the mountain, which I thought was actually a, even, even better. But, um, and then they just had real fire exploding from where, you know, she was going to be anyway. So, but you, men you mentioned the fire, the fire effects in the show are incredible. The one thing that I noticed is that you had these massive flame projectors and these fireballs, like, you know, like these, like Epcot millennium, like, you know, uh, apocalypse barge level fire uh, fire effects, but you didn't have you you, you didn't have any f traditional fireworks. You know, the like traditional pyro. You have it in the in the in the uh, the media and the elements and the sound design and all that. I'm curious, it, what I, I'm I'm guessing that there was some sort of challenge where you couldn't have traditional fireworks and pyro for some reason. Maybe part of that is that the way that the property is designed, there's hotel all the way around. So this this island is a little bit like. The, I call it the Orlando of Vietnam. So there's multiple theme parks. There's an animal park. Sorry, my dog is making a, a an appearance. Um, <laughs> um, there's uh, there, but there's hotel and villas and that sort of thing all the way around. And so there's no there's no particularly great place for us to to actually have a a, a firing location for that. Um, and uh, we felt that. We really wanted to keep the show contained within this space. Uh, we didn't want to feel like it was too far outside of the realm of, of the park. Um, and so we decided not to actually go with, you know, actual, you know, fireworks, I guess, part of the show. Um, but ultimately, I think the fire itself does its job. Um, it's very hot. It is very, very hot. In fact, we had to, to answer Jason's question, we had plans <laughs> that had to be modified because the fire was too hot. And so we had to uh, pull back a lot. I mean, those flame balls are not even anywhere close to what we had planned for how that was supposed to go. But wow. I mean, <laughs> we all stood there and we tried it out the first time and we we're like, all right, we're going to do it. And we tried it out the first time and we all went, oh no, there's no way we can't do this. Um, uh, another one was in the staging. You know, this the stage is not designed as a stage. It's open to the audience during the day or to the park guests during the day. They can wander around. And so there's pathways and handrails and benches and stuff like that, that up there on the stage area that we have to contend with, right? We can't we can't move that stuff. And there's a big long bench that we have tech tech built into that's blocked during the day. And um and the original staging for the show was behind the bench, but we were losing all the all the cast like really from the knees down. Um, and so uh, we came in um, later in the process and said, you know, we're not going to do this. We're going to redesign the bench. And they actually rebuilt the bench while we were there um, and made it wider so that we could use it as a pathway, as a walkway for the cast to be up on a bench. So we had a couple different levels. So you'll see moments where the cast is up on, on this bench and then the rest of the cast is down below on the water's edge. So we get two different levels. So we get the boy and the shaman and Pearly, they're up higher. And the rest of the cast is kind of down below supporting and uh, supporting the scene action. So um, it actually ends up 
ended up working out really well that way and, and we're really happy with the result but yeah to, i mean to, to answer jason's question there was a handful of things that were like oh no <laughs> that's not gonna work <laughs> and that's a little scary again being on an island there's no home depot there's no options you know you don't just say oh we're gonna make a change and then call in a contractor or a specialist to come in and help make that change it doesn't work you know if you're gonna make a change you got to do it yourself right there figure it out um, with very limited resources Andy oh sorry I was on mute Awesome. No, I appreciate all that. So let's move on to another question. So, you know, you've, you've kind of talked about, you've, you've talked about a little bit the unique aspects of that, this, the, the stage, like the fact that people are on it, which is pretty in, incredible, uh, kind of like Fantasmic. And, and Kelly, I'm going to have to have you tell that Fantasmic story eventually about your upbringing. Um, what was it like putting a show on in Vietnam versus other locations, you know, for example, like safety regulations, et cetera? Um, Melanie, want, want to start with you? Uh, you know, I, I haven't worked on a theme park show in the past, so I don't know how different it is. But I do know that, um, you know, the kids were working in the park doing like a 10-hour day during, the, during their shows in the park. And then they yeah. would come to us. They would have a quick dinner break and then come to us for four or five hours. And, um, you know, we tried to – we had stage management who – kept us um, doing safety, like uh, um, Stephen Grasset, and um, they made sure that we we gave them breaks and, you know, we tried to do our best to try to keep it as the same way we would have done a show in New York or in Florida, but also um, tried to do some uh, a lot of safety, safety protocol, because we did use those heavy fire flames and fire on the water and... Um, you know, a lot of the kids had never, we had one kid who had very curly hair and he, every time the fire flame went up, he would grab his head and run because, and he was nowhere near it, but he was so afraid that his head would catch on fire. And when we talk about the fire, I mean, those, it, it, it was truly hot, but so we, we showed them, we did um, different ways of showing them the different aspects of the show, different you know, the fire, the water screen, we showed it to them first. And then we put them on stage far, far away, had them watch it from off stage and then brought them closer and closer. So, you know, we, Stephen Grasset was great about um, making sure that we kept everyone safe. And, you know, um, we, you know, we were in a foreign country where we weren't sure who was going to be setting it up that day. So, we had our our tech crew make sure that everything was handled correctly because, you know, how terrible would it have been if we had some kind of a mishap? So, yeah. you know, yes, yeah, so the stage and It's, a, it's an interesting play. process because, if, I mean, both Stephen um, and Melanie um, had to focus not only on kind of making sure everybody was where they were supposed to be and how do they get on and off the stage in time to make a costume change or get a prop or, or it, 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 not even that, um, you, you know, both Stephen and Melanie had to walk through which side of the stage people had to leave in order to come on from that side again later, because there was no way for them to really get around to the other side of the stage. Um, so they were always thinking ahead so we would be in the rehearsal process and then it would be Stephen and Melanie who the next day would go out and they would talk through 
like the fire moments in the show or how to make sure that the sorceress wasn't going to, you know, fall off the mountain and how she gets up and down from the mountain. And so Stephen actually would turn to the park and say, we need to put handrails in here, or I need to put grips on the ground or that sort of thing. Melanie's working with the cast to find out what their comfort level is and where the sorceress needs handholds and that sort of thing. And then Stephen is working with the, with the, the park to, to actually make that stuff happen. And where I think this is, um, different is that, you know, we were working with a park that's never done a show like this before. So e even, even though, I mean, they've done fountain shows and they've done larger shows, but this kind of large scale effects show with live performers and where there's a, a tremendous safety concern um, and where procedures, safety procedures need to be in place uh, is new for them. And so our team really had to take the lead in setting those standards, writing those policies, enforcing them, doing the training. And, you know, we're, we're not, I'm not going to say that, you know, we've done this so much that we can just, you know, write those policies without even like looking at it, because that would be foolish. Anybody who knows how this works knows you have to go and stand there. But, you know, Stephen and Melanie would stand on the edge of the stage where the actors are supposed to be, and they'd say, okay, shoot the fire off. And they would put themselves through that whole process, and then they would say, oh, no, there's no way. This is too hot, right? Mm. And so so then they would have to go back, and Melanie would have to rework where people were on the stage and how they would get on and off the stage and how that timing worked within the, the track of the show before we trained the staff. And then they'd have to go back and change how it was programmed. So it was this back and forth all the time, this constant like trial and error, that iterative process that they had to go through in order to make sure that the cast was never in a position where they couldn't make their changes on time. They were in a place where it was where they would where they would have, you know, come across any sort of danger. Um, you know, I mean, between the the the, the compressed gas in the show. Um, the, the, the fuel, the fire on water, uh, the, certainly the, the, the flames going up in the air. I mean, it's a dangerous show. There's potential for some, some significant injury. And, uh, you know, I mean, they, they have to make sure doors are locked and there has to be people up on the castle to watch the fire for every show. And if those people don't exist, they can't run the show. So it's, 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 it was a real process for them to go through that and figure out the, 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 the quickest, safest way to execute the show without sacrificing the artistic quality of it. And, and then you to know, also, also Stephen had to, he, Stephen's great about um, anticipating what might be an issue. So he went ahead and he, you know, the castle was built while we were there in rehearsal. They were building it during the day as we were, we were rehearsing. So he put lights, he, he put lights, like LED lights on all the areas where the, the cast would be running on the stairs. Um, and then he painted some white line on the steps because the sorceress comes out in this flume of, of fog and she's blind. So she comes out and, you know, so we, we had to make sure that it was going to be safe for them, but also safe for the audience because, you know, the audience is, watching it from the other side of the of the, the lagoon but we do have water um that catches on fire which is an amazing thing to see but we didn't want small kids standing um holding on to the rail you know with their faces right up against that water so we made sure that um we have park employees who are walking around before the show and making all the kids sit down everyone small kids had to be sitting at least four 
four rows back so that they had, there was no way that they could jump up and walk to the water. So, you know, um, we tried to think ahead just to make sure that the, the main thing was safety because you yeah. could see that flume of um, fire from the hotels even. That's mm. how big it was. So, I mean, it's exciting, but we also Steven wanted says to he would be here, except he's on his yacht off the coast of Mexico. <laughs> That's been nice. <laughs> yeah, that's nice. So, like, as if, as if all of that wasn't enough of a challenge, then COVID hit and yeah. threw that monkey wrench into everybody's lives and careers and, and your show and everything else. Uh, what what sort of challenges, how far along were you, and what challenges did that introduce oh, into your, well, your process? That was a big monkey wrench. I mean, we were we were in the middle of rehearsal in Vietnam. Melanie was there. A lot of the team was there already. And they started shutting down the borders. And um, they started travel restrictions. And we had to make the difficult decision to pull our team out and stop I think rehearsals. We had, I think we had 12 hours notice that we were like going to bug out. So yeah. we just had to pack everything up as best as we could. All the puppets had to be disassembled and packed up for storage and we just bugged out and because uh, we had been there about a month already I think five weeks then we took off and then I think it was over a year before we could go back and this is our team Aaron and Christopher and I are all in this team where we came back and um, and then we had to quarantine for two weeks and take a series of COVID tests and because this was actually before vaccination, I think Christopher and I were the only lucky ones who were able to be fully vaxxed before we went. Um, but it was weird, right? Because when we got there, there was no, there was almost zero cases in Vietnam at the time. And the second time we went and uh, there was no cases on the island. So they wanted to make sure it stayed that way, you know? Yeah. And uh, we were lucky that we were able to, finish it up before um things before the next happened. round happened yeah. where they are yeah. now which was I, I, I mentioned I mentioned my Egyptian friend who's seen the show he he went to Egypt uh, he went to Vietnam just two weeks before the lockdown and then he just stayed the entire year he he literally just left for the first time two weeks ago yeah he got stuck there he, no he decided to stay oh. <laughs> he chose to stay yeah because, yeah. I, I mean, I don't know about the rest of you, but I felt super safe there because we were in New York before that, you know, where we couldn't even go to the, you know, it was kind of scary to go to the grocery store, but we were eating in the buffet there, you know, it seemed like nothing had happened. It was a weird kind of concept to think it, that COVID hadn't hit that island yet, you know. Particularly to be seeing what's happening at home. Right. To be to be in that environment and watching what's happening at home and to be like, wow, you know, it's just the difference was, was pretty incredible. There were certainly times where we would, you know, we would have our masks on and we would mask up and and and, um, you know, do that. But sorry, my dog's barking now. But um, uh, when we were with our smaller group, you know, it just it just wasn't a thing. And so um, we certainly got tested. I mean, it was not uncommon for them to say, hey, you got to go in for a test, which was not fun in a Vietnamese international hospital. Um, but, you know, um, once we got there, uh, we were doing OK. We were doing OK. Um, but again, the lack of resources, you know, I mean, we had lighting fixtures that were prepped to start a tech 
a year prior and they hadn't been used for a year. They've been sitting out there in the elements for a year, not being energized and not being used. And so there was a whole maintenance procedure that had to happen. And again, a lot of the team that was supposed to be there couldn't be there because they were coming from parts of the world that had significant travel restrictions that just meant they couldn't come. And so it's a lot of, you know, how do we fix light fixtures on an island off the coast of Cambodia without any resources? You know, and so sacrifices were made. We moved light fixtures around. We tried to figure things out. You know, um, it, it, the same thing with, you know, our video media servers. You know, er everything functioned, but there was no backup plan, right? If something went down, it went down, and that was it, you know? And so there was the, uh, there was this constant feeling of like, oh, gosh, this, like we can't, this can't, like we just have to, this, this has to go okay. Um, and that was COVID, you know, that was, that was the impact of COVID. But I think the people, um, you know, there was, a, there didn't seem to be any sort of, you know, reduction at all, or any sort of impact on the, on the tourism internally within the, within the country of Vietnam to the island. There certainly is now, uh, but there wasn't at the time. Yeah. But I will say one of the benefits for me anyway, and I can, uh, anybody, everybody else can say what they got to say about it. But for me, I, you know, I would love to start every project like that being sequestered in a hotel room for two weeks with nothing else to do. <laughs> yeah, absolutely like, no not never yeah. no that was horrible no a lot of my friends uh a lot of my friends and colleagues worked on universal beijing and uh they had to do three sometimes four weeks of, of various stages of quarantine um that uh just sounded tr just dreadful I mean, oh, I mean, and, and, you know, there's no way you could have brought enough whiskey with you to make it bearable, I don't think. <laughs> well, we figured out there was this trick you figured out. We had, a, where did we stop off in Japan, right, Mel? We stopped in Japan and we figured out that if you go to the duty-free in Japan, you could get, you could get alcohol, you could get booze, and you could take it with you, and then you would have booze in the quarantine, right? And so, um uh, I think we have some of these video moments, but we, we, so we had two teams that went, the first team was the kind of the technical installation team. And then the creative team came second. So once we kind of got things installed, you know, uh, we got, we got, we were able to kind of bring in the, 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 the creative team, because there's no reason for them to sit around and watch people turn screws. Right. <laughs> so a lot of the lessons we learned in the first quarantine process, we tried to kind of pass along to the, the creative team when they were in their uh, quarantine two or three weeks after we left. So um, our company manager, Frenchie, uh, <laughs> she used to do these videos every day where uh, she'd have one of the translators teach, um, send a video to, to teach them like a phrase in Vietnamese. And so it was like their Vietnamese lesson for the day. Um, That's fun. And then That's clever. She, yeah, she would go around and she would do interviews with different people on the on the site just to kind of just to make them feel connected. You know, that's the one thing that I didn't like about the the quarantine, and I worried a lot about everybody on the team was just the the disconnect, the loneliness, the disconnection. You know, just being away from everybody, and I, I just never really wanted anybody on the team to feel like, you know, they didn't know what was going on or you know that stuff was happening without them. 
And so I, I told Frenchie, I'll make sure that you're sending them something every day. And then uh, I said, and once or twice, send them some cupcakes. Once or twice, send them some, you know. <laughs> and so they would do that. Like send these little gifts and cupcakes and stuff. Um, but yeah, this is one of them. <laughs> Oh, it's fast forwarding. Well, at least now too, you can see what the lagoon looks like without the water in it. Yeah. And that's what it looked like for a long time, actually. Yeah. There's not as many fountains as I would have expected. It looks like the, the end result is like, it looks like there's a lot more than there is. We're clever, Andy. We're clever. Mm. No, well done. Thanks. Well, well um, let's, uh, you know, I want to talk briefly about the music and sound design for the show. I mean, I, as sure. you know, I'm, I'm a composer. I've done a bunch of Lagoon shows. I really liked the music in the show. I really did a lot. And I'm, I'm a tough customer and yeah, I wouldn't say that. I, he's not just telling you that. Cause I wouldn't, never, I wouldn't say that. Yeah. <laughs> I wouldn't, I wouldn't have even brought it up if I didn't like it, but I really liked it a lot. Um, I'd love to hear um, about your process working with your composer composers arrangers um and integration with sound design like you know when i when i do projects um i try to have control over the entire audio spectrum including the music and the sound design so like if you had a separate sound design team and like you know especially just like the development of the music and the style of music um and you know the decision of how much sort of vietnamese stylistic elements to use and not and and you know western style scoring and you know the huge chorus that you had which i think i know which sample library they used if it wasn't real <laughs> the actual the actual like background vocals yeah no i mean the big giant chorus the singers yeah yeah those are no, real no. singers no, there's there's a there's a choir sound in there in in some of the sequences. Oh, oh, it's like oh, a, 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 hun, a hundred. Yeah, I, yeah, I think yeah, yeah, I know exactly which one that is too. But no, I I, I want to hear all about um, your process with the music. Yeah, so um, we started with a song um, because we knew we wanted a, a song that uh, told the story, uh, and then uh, we let that inspire the track for the show. So the uh, composing team for the song was um, Alan Zachary and Michael Weiner. They're, they're a Broadway composing team. Uh, they've also done quite a bit of work with Disney and Universal. They've done some kind of Disney uh, castaway, castaway shows, uh, sail away shows for Disney Cruise Line. Uh, you might know their work from um, the, uh, the uh, quartet um, kind of radio. Dapper Dan's? Uh, no, 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 uh, at uh, Di Diagon Alley. Oh yeah, oh, uh, the, singers, the, the frog singers, but not that something different. No, no, no. no, no it's, it's the it's the, the, uh, the the Motown show that they do there with the. Uh, yeah, what's the name of? It's like the nineteen forties kind of radio yeah. hour kind of thing. Where she, yeah, and so and that's a great show too. Um, and so they you know, they do quite a bit of work, so they kind of get it, like they understand what the idea is here. And so um, we we work through how to tell the story, like what we wanted that theme song to be um and uh we went into the studio and recorded just that song um and then snippets that uh kind of we could use throughout the the show and then we handed that to andrew christie and andrew christie did the actual show track 
for the whole show, the whole 22 minute track that was going to then set to time code. And that was quite a bit of a process because it, for, for every moment that we move closer to the show, the tighter that track has to become, the more the more frozen it has to be. And, I, you know, uh, I only, I think only one time did I pull, you know, a last minute track change that everybody, that I, you know, everybody grew some gray hair about um, during the tech process, because that's not good, right? It's very difficult for the creative team to react to changes in time code and changes in the track when we're already in the tech process. Um, but there was these moments that just needed, we just needed to land them. And, it, you know, once you see it in the space and you get the bigness of the space and you need the bigness of the sound, we just had to figure out a way to make it work. So we, we adjusted some of those track moments, did the best that we could to kind of keep it all within the same time code so we weren't, you know, shifting time code points. And I think we had a little bit of a shift, but not too much. Um, but then ultimately that got bounced to a, a track with the time code for the show control that was running the show. So they all run together. Um, and then our uh, sound designer, Brian DeLange, um, came in and added on top of that sound effects, all of the support for the fire. You know, the fire makes a lot of noise, but there's some rumble in the in the sound too. So we're it's really supporting a lot of what you see on stage. Um, and so ultimately the end result is, you know, this really lush, full soundtrack with a combination of, you know, the samples, uh, the orchestrations, and the uh, the live performers that uh, that we recorded in New York City, you know, all Broadway singers. Where did you so, record the? Uh, did you record a live orchestra? And and if so, where did you do that? We did not record a live orchestra. Oh wow! Well, okay. Yeah, uh, it sounded great. But again, his samples are fantastic. I mean, they, yeah. it's just great. You know. Um, yeah, I could, I could tell. I, I knew exactly which sample libraries he was using then, because that's why I was just like, was it, if you recorded live, it must have been at uh, at uh, Air Studios because it sounded like Spitfire or yeah, Air Studios. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We started the process with Danny Fiandica, who was our original uh, sound designer. He put a lot of the kind of the, the basic uh, pieces in place, um, and then when we got on site. Um, Brian really mixed it all and, 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 you know, made all of those little tweaks and programmed everything so that it, you know, sounded the way it sounded. And you think it sounds great. You should hear it in the space. It's, yeah, I bet. Did you mix it in mono uh, or stereo or, or multi-track, multiphonic? No, we did it in mono because mm -hmm. the way that the, the, we're not, we're not in a bowl this way. We're in a concaved convexed curve around the lagoon so we do use a lot of that kind of sound image experience mm -hmm. um especially with some of the like rumbling thunder that kind of goes by and he plays with it a little bit but for the most part the music and the tracks coming out all at the same time who did your site mix your actual mix on site brian delant okay that's and that's cool and right up to the very end, we were adding little bits and pieces like, you know, um, getting some giggles and laughs from, you know, the hero or some, you know, like. Um, oh, I wish we had those pictures. <laughs> I mean, you know, we were we were getting tight on time, so we didn't have the time to go. He had a 
little sound studio that he built in his in his um, hotel room with a uh, an ironing board and pillows that you know the kid the kids would stick their head in and we would record in there. But then at the end, when we were just trying to do like little one like a giggle here or something like that, um, we were actually going into the dark ride. There was a dark ride that's built into the back of that castle that hasn't fully been built yet. So we would go in there and it's a giant snake ride, which I'm excited to finally see. I mean, so it's half built and we had the keys. So we went back there and, you know, we would kick the dead bats to the side. They were like dead bats and giant centipedes like this long. And um, we would just do it on a handheld mic and he would mix it. He would just take the recordings and mix it in his room. And he was doing that every day. We were just trying to get, you know, little recordings here and there to just keep adding on and layering. Yeah, that's incredible. I mean, I, I can relate to that for sure, because, you know, when I went to, uh, I worked on Warner Brothers World Abu Dhabi, and I, I flew out there to, at my own expense to the opening. And uh, I, I got back out there about a week before the opening. And I got texts from everybody that, you know, as soon as I landed, I'm like, are you here? And I'm like, yeah, but I'm on vacation. I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But like, we need you to do all this editing and 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 additional sound design for the pause show and blah, 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 blah. I'm just like, all right. <laughs> so I know we have a we have a clip here of actual singing. Why don't we why don't we throw it to it? Cool. We'll come stuff together. You can imagine as far as your dreams, stories enchanting and bold. If there's an ending that's yet to be written, it's you who can make it unfold. You have the power to finish the tale, inventing what never was there. Wonderful journeys are yours for the taking, so take us near or far. That's Rima Webb, Broadway legend. Wow. Yeah. So Rima, Rima was the female lead voice. Justin Sargent uh, was the male lead voice who plays the, the English um, singing voice for the, for the boy, for the hero. Well, it was all just yeah. really great. I mean, I, I loved all of it. Um, it, it. It all just came together and, you know, then the, the music, you know, as always, it does. It brought it all together. Oh yeah, <laughs> and um, I just, you know, the whole show overall was incredible. And uh, you know, I'm just so pleased to, you know, have met all of you and learned all about it. I mean, it's just so awesome. And Patrick, you want to you want to bring us home? Yeah, you know, it's always a great final uh, story or question, right? What lessons did you learn from this experience? You know, uh, open to everybody. We'll go down the line. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's always an amazing experience to bring, put up a show, which we did at this scale is really amazing. So why don't we go ahead and start with, uh, we'll start with Aaron and then work our way around Aaron. Um, you know, I, th I think the takeaway on the show for me was that we all really worked well together on was focus. I mean, we had so many amazing tools at our disposal with the big fire effects and the fountains and the projections and story and actors. And I think our first pass there was a lot of things happening at once and it was you know there's so many amazing effects it was kind of overwhelming so we really took a lot of time to 
focus, pull back, you know, at one moments, the fountains are shining and other moments, the video is shining. And then we pull way down. So we're looking at the actors. And I think that's the thing that stands out for me uh, uh, that we as a team really did together. Um, so that that's what I remember most about it. And I'm most proud of. Great. Over to Melanie. Uh, you know, I, I think um, for me, it's the same. I think um, it was kind of like, um, you know, Quantum brought a whole bunch of people together and everyone was so good at their jobs. Like, you know, every day I'd come in and I'd see Christopher's costume design and I'd be like blown away by it. I'd be in tears seeing them in costumes. And then I'd see like Aaron put an added a turtle in for me, you know, at one point swimming up the castle. I was like, oh my God, you know, every day it's something new. And, you know, I think part of it is, Quantum just brought a great group of people together and we kind of all just like chipped in and, you know, like even as even like stage management and like the crew that that we had, everybody came in. I mean, you know, the crew were all like so skilled, like if if I would say something like, oh, you know, I kind of wish we had some kind of a holder here up that was drilled onto the wall. The next day I'd come in and there it would be there, you know, so everybody was really like hardworking and just couldn't wait to come in and participate. And for me, that was that, that and getting to know the cast for me was my favorite part. And uh, it was, it was just a, a, a great experience all around for me. And I loved working with, with Kelly. And um, I feel like he trusted me with a lot of stuff. And for me, I think that it instilled a lot of confidence in me to, to continue on. And, um, you know, I think that, um, it was such a huge project and, you know, but in the end, it seemed like a small group of people who came together and worked together, you know? So for me, that was, that was awesome. That's great. And then over to Christopher. Um, for me, I guess the lesson was just tell the story and, and, and it's, it's sort of, sort of very basic, but through all the challenges that we had, that we, that the world was going through, you know, we all we were doing was just telling the story and that and that that was a thing that human beings had been gathering together around you know usually a fire this time about a big lagoon to hear a story um and to be um challenged by it and and their imagination sort of brought to life and and no matter what the challenges we we faced i think we all just kept going to telling the story and and that's why it was uh such a success that's great. And then Kelly, a final thought. This really was your dream come true. Could you tell the Fantasmic story, please? As, as <laughs> well, you know, I grew up on Fantasmic. It was like a thing for me, you know, when I was when I was younger, I used to I lived up in Northern California and I would drive down to Disneyland to watch Fantasmic. I would get there at, you know, three or four in the afternoon and sit myself next to the next to the lagoon and watch the show and get my car and drive home. And, um, you know, the thing I loved about that show was that it, it really sprung out of nowhere. Um, and, uh, you know, in the in the in the sense of in the spirit of Mickey's imagination, it, it comes out of this space that just exists kind of in, in the in real life throughout the day. And then and then this enormous thing happens, kind of comes out of the ground and it just happens and then it goes away. Um, and I, that I thought was really spectacular and really magical and it really resonated with me. And that's kind of what got me started um, in this um, 
pursuit of you know nighttime spectaculars and wanting to produce and direct nighttime spectaculars and while i think this story and this show has a lot of that same quality that wasn't really the spirit that we were trying that wasn't the story that we were trying to tell um uh, you know it didn't matter necessarily to us that people felt like the show kind of exploded out of nowhere it was really more about um uh telling the story that that this imagination exists within all of us and that um, you can use your imagination. It's okay. Like you, you, you can, you can dream and, um, and, and it's okay if those dreams come true. Uh, and it's okay if those dreams are challenging. Um, I think the lesson that I learned, um, in this, uh, in this experience was, um, or I think the lesson that I celebrate the most out of this experience is, is, is truly how awesome the collaboration the collaboration was, um, it, you know, the, for every single person that we've mentioned on this call, there are 14 other people who, who, who we haven't had time to mention, who have been critical, who are, who are just incredible, awesome, talented, passionate people who showed up uh, in the middle of a pandemic to make this thing happen. And they faced every challenge every day, whether it was not getting crew meals on time or transportation issues, getting people back and forth from the park. Um, you know, uh, our, our project director, Mark Wigley, um, we lovingly call the mountain Wigley Mountain because for a long time his office was inside the mountain just so that he could make sure that all the equipment got installed correctly. But everybody was invested, not just in their job, but in the end product, in the end result. And so there was this, there's this great celebration when we're done because we had this wonderful crew of people that were just so incredibly emotionally connected to the product, to the story, to the experience. And I think that being able to create that kind of team is where the magic is here with this. Um, I, I think we all show up every day and do our jobs, and I think that's great. Um, but I think it's a, it's saying something else when when you show up in your heart and you and you and you're really committed, um, and you're on a team of other people who are who are emotionally invested in actually seeing this experience come to life, um, and they take ownership of it, they take pride in it, and um, so you know Mark Wigley, uh, you know. Um, could have easily just said, listen, I'm, I'm here to make all this stuff work. And if you need me, I'm going to be at the hotel. But every night he was there making sure it worked. He knew what the objective was. Stephen Grassett, there's no way this show would have happened without Stephen Grassett. He, knew, he knows every single minute critical point in that show and made it happen and connected every single team member and watched out for the staff and watched out for the crew. Um, and, 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 you know, these two, those two guys really are the two guys that, that supported this team and allowed them to get their work done. And, and this just exchange of emotional value was really, really incredible. Uh, I don't know. I hope that we can make that happen again someday. I hope because it was a, a, a just a, a beautiful, fantastic experience that that I would love to have again. Uh, I mean, I was just I was just going to ask, like, like, I can't wait to see what you guys do next with this team and 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 Quantum Creative. And it was so, so great to to get to meet all of you and hear all your stories. And, and Kelly, you and I just met today. I, I didn't make the prep meeting, but um, Fantasmic is also my origin story. Um, yeah. I'm from Anaheim, and I was at opening night of Fantasmic, 
And uh, that was the moment uh, for me that galvanized what I wanted to do for the rest of my life as well. So for, and for a long time, I always said that everything I write start out, starts out like Fantasmic and then becomes whatever it needs to be for the project because <laughs> I was obsessed with it for a long time. And it's fun because now I'm friends with like Bruce Healy and Don Dorsey and all those yeah. guys that, that worked on it. And it's, it's so rewarding to be able to get to realize your dream like that. And I you know, congratulate you and all of you and your, your whole team. You guys did a great job. And I can't wait to see what's next from you guys. Thanks, Andy. Yeah. Well, I want to pick your brain about Fantastic, and I'm not going to see you at IAPA, so I'll send you a little note. Okay. <laughs> well, Kelly, Christopher, Melanie, and Aaron, thank you so much for joining us here on the Untitled Game Entertainment Design Show. It was a fantastic time uh, going on an overview of once. Uh, thank, go ahead, and we're going to put you in the green room, and everyone, we'll be, we'll be off for a couple of weeks while we figure out IAPA, but we can't wait to see you again. Take care, and have a good night, everybody.